Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter number 1. If I encourage you to kind of maybe earmark that or, or crease your Bible in Jonah 1 because it is relatively difficult to find sometimes. So Jonah is towards the end of the Old Testament. One of the smaller prophets, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk are all right in a row. Jonah is page 943 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. I'm not sure what page it is in your Bible, but that's what it is in mine. So Jonah 1, we covered three verses last week. We'll cover another three this week. And then next week, we'll finish Jonah chapter 1. But I want us to read the first six verses together. So Jonah 1, and look in verse number 1. Here is what the Bible says. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, anytime you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that's Jehovah, is, is what that means. But the Lord, Jehovah sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. In case you missed the intro to Jonah, let me catch you up quickly. Uh, I can't regurgitate the entire sermon. That's why we put them on the website so that you can listen to it, so you can watch it. But I, I would like to get you caught up to speed briefly on what's happened thus far in this story. Here is Jonah, and Jonah chapter 1 introduced to us this prophet of God who's, according to 2 Kings 14, has been used of God previously to prophesy to Jeroboam II, and that prophecy came true. And Jonah is this man who lives in uh, 8th century BC. He lives in the northern kingdom of Israel, where Jeroboam II is reigning, the capital city of Samaria. And this man is called by God to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Israel's arch enemy, the Assyrians. So he's told to go to hostile foreign land, kind of go behind enemy lines and to evangelize this city and to cry against it because their wickedness has come up before the Lord. And instead, Jonah heads to Tarshish, which is in all likelihood modern-day Spain. So God told Jonah, go northeast to northern Iraq, and Jonah decides to go southwest in the opposite direction to run from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah is essentially retiring from ministry, hanging it all up, saying goodbye to the homeland, and running a long, long way away, really the, the corner of the known world, to get away from the presence of the Lord. And he is in an effort to get away from the presence of the Lord, which is a fool's errand, by the way. You can, you can run from a dog, you can run from the police, you can run from even human relationships, but running from the presence of the Lord just never works out well. But here's this man running from God, and we'll soon learn that his reluctant faith really stands no chance against God's relentless grace. 
that he is no match for a God who's going to pursue him and get after him and interrupt his life. And Jonah chooses to do something that we have all been guilty of. He chooses to trust his feelings rather than God's word. He knows God's word. It's crystal clear. There is, there's no uh, mental disconnect at all. But he chooses to trust his feelings and to run from the call that God has given him. And now on the run, he books a ship, which is interesting because the Jews didn't even like seafaring. They left that to the Phoenicians. Uh, Jews were by and large land lovers. They're, they're landlocked. But he books this ship to live in direct disobedience to God, to run from the mission that God has called him to, and he attempts to escape this sphere of evangelism that God has called him to, and he, he wants to put himself outside of God's jurisdiction and to basically do his own thing. And we come to verse number three where we left off last week that at the end of the verse we find that he was to go with them unto Tarshish, and the point of going to Tarshish was to get away from the presence of the Lord. And then verse number four starts with, but the Lord. Here's, here's the contrast. Jonah wanting to get away from the presence of the Lord. Now, verse number four, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. There was a mighty uh, tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Imagine for a second that you're Jonah. Try, try to live this in color with me. I don't know if it happened exactly this way, but the call comes to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And, and I don't know if Jonah slept on that. I don't know if he pondered it. I don't know if he wrestled it. But let's suppose maybe he did for a night and he wrestled with this. And he woke up in the morning and he makes the decision internally. I'm going to run from God. I'm going to not do this. I'm going to live in disobedience. And maybe Jonah expects that there'll be some sort of divine retribution that comes his way, but nothing happens. So Jonah begins to pack a suitcase, and instead of packing clothes for a 110-degree desert Iraq, he packs clothes for a Mediterranean vacation. He's going off the coast of Spain to have a good time. But nothing, nothing happens. No, it's, it's crickets. There's no footsteps in the background. It seems like God hasn't noticed. And Jonah begins to head the opposite direction of Nineveh, down to Joppa, Jaffa, modern-day Jaffa, right there off the coast by Tel Aviv. And he heads the opposite direction, and nothing happens. No one stops him. No, no lightning bolts, no thunder, nothing. And he, he maybe, as fast as he can, get to, gets to Joppa, and he, he breathlessly counts out the coins to book the ship to go to Tarshish, and nothing happens. He gets on the ship, and the anchor is pulled up, and a few minutes later, the, the coast and the port city of Joppa begin to disappear on the horizon, and there's no lightning bolts, there's no storm coming, and Jonah begins to think, possibly, it's working, I'm escaping, I'm getting away from God, and night comes, and the stars begin to sparkle in the last two days of stress and turmoil and anxiety and trying to escape the presence of the Lord, Jonah begins to be at peace a little bit, and he goes down into the ship to, to sleep. And then verse number four comes, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. There was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. What's God doing here? God is interrupting Jonah's run. 
This is a divine interruption sent from the Lord. And Jonah is going to learn what David learned, that he cannot escape the presence of the Lord, that there is no, there's no rock he can crawl under, there's no corner of the world that he can isolate himself in, there's no cave where, we, where he can hide in, that he's not going to be able to escape the presence of the Lord because we have an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God who's, who's everywhere. David says this in Psalm 139. You can turn there or we'll put it on the screen, whatever you prefer. But this is what David says in Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. David says, God, you, you know me. You know what I'm doing. You know what I'm up. You know what I'm down. You even know my thoughts Verse number three, thou compassest my path and my lying down. Like you, you've circled me in. Thou art acquainted with all my ways, for there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou, hast, thou knowest it altogether. God, you, you know everything. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm thinking. You know what I'm doing. You, you know it all. Verse number five, thou hast beset me behind and before. God, you're in the rearview mirror and the windshield. You've laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. David says, I can't, I can't even wrap my head around this. I don't even know how to, how to understand this, that God could be everywhere at the same time, that he knows everything that's happening. He's, he's involved in it all. It's just, it's, it's high. It's, it's wonderful. How do, I, how do I connect all these dots? Verse number seven, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. God, you're everywhere. I can't escape you. I can't get away from you. Nine, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, which is where Jonah is right now, even there shall thy hand lead me. Thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. David says, I, I, I try to get in the shadows. I try to hide the night, but God, you got, you got night vision goggles or something. It doesn't matter to you. It's in light, night, they're all the same to you. I can't hide from you. Verse 13, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me even in my mother's womb. David says, God, you're, you're everywhere. I can't escape you. I, you know me, my thoughts, what I say, what I do. You, you know it all, and, and God, you're there. And, and you would think that certainly Jonah as a prophet had read that psalm, had sang that psalm, knew that psalm, but here he is trying to escape from the presence of the Lord. And God is going to interrupt his life. God's going to give a divine interruption to Jonah Many times God will do this in your life, in my life, and his intention is to stop you abruptly so that you'll stop, you'll turn around, and you'll respond in obedience, and you'll go to the direction that he has for you. But Jonah is a man who's on the run. And, and he even, if you notice the verse, he even, in verse 3, pays a fare to go to Tarshish. Jonah has begun to pay for the ship. He's begun to put his trust literally in the ship to take him from the presence of the Lord. And verse number four tells us that's what God wants to break up. He sends this, this storm, this tempest, so that, the end of verse four, the ship was like to be broken. 
Jonah has placed his confidence in the ship, which is essentially functional idolatry for this man. And God says, guess what? You place your trust in that ship. You're going to allow that to take you away from me. You're going to allow that to be this sort of escapism for you. See if I don't take that ship and squeeze it. See if I don't take that ship and begin to break it up because your heart has begun to trust in something other than me. As believers, we're, intru- we're instructed to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, to lean not unto our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him so that he shall direct our paths. But you know what's easy for us, if we're honest? It's easy to begin to put our trust in man-made ships. It's easy to begin to trust in the things that we've built, the things that we've invested in, the things that are going to take us where we want to go. Foolishly, we invest in the achievement ship. Good grades, promotions at work, trying to get success, even, even in ministry, trying to find success in ministry, accolades, awards. You wouldn't say it out loud, but some of you have put a lot of stock into your achievements. Biblically, this is known as the pride of life. It's known as a sin because what that does is it begins to supplant God ruling in your heart and you begin to trust in what I've done, what I've built, what I've achieved rather than trusting in God. We trust in the approval ship. Oh, I I want them to like me. I want to live up to their expectations. I can never say no to anybody. I I need to make everyone happy. I need to ensure that all the kids are getting along because I find my identity in them rather than in Christ. We can begin to trust in people's approval. We, We trust in the comfort ship. We're Americans, aren't we? And we love our creature comforts. We, we earn lots of money and we buy lots of toys and we, we accrue to ourselves this, this nest egg that gives us security and gives us comfort of sorts. And, and forget keeping up with the Joneses. We are the Joneses. We begin to, to, to really be these people that, man, I'm always going to have a cup of coffee in my hand. I'm always going to have a vacation on the books. I'm always going to have enough TV on the DVR so that I can watch that and vegetate for the evening. And, and I just want my creature comforts. Even sometimes I'm bothered by those that have more than me because I, I want to have that. I'm a king. I deserve to be treated. I deserve to have my comfort. We'll begin to, to trust in that. We trust in the relationship ship. If only I could get that relationship, if only they would love me, if only I could make that connection, if only I could have them, I'd find the one that I'm destined for, then my life would be great, it'd be awesome. I would have everything that I wanted and you don't even realize that the relationships that you have, that begun to supplant God in your heart and they've begun to numb you to the presence of God. Good relationships even. Your spouse, your grandchildren, your own children. You can begin to trust in those rather than trusting in God. And mark my words, when you begin to have a ship that you've banked on, that you've put your trust in, and that begins to be functional idolatry in your heart, God will break that up. He will send a storm into your life. He will interrupt you divinely in order to break that ship up and to move your heart back to trusting in Him. Some of us, it's even, it's even our, our health or our finances and whatever it is that begins to rule your heart and you find this, this security blanket of sorts, God will begin to mess with that. You say, man, that's a mean God. 
He must really be vengeful if he's going to mess with me, if he's going to take this and break it up. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Anytime a God begins to interrupt your life and begins to show you and try to get you back on track, and even if it's at the expense of the ship that you trust in, that's a merciful and a gracious and a loving God who's trying to get you back on track because what you're banking on is going to leave you disappointed in the long run. And God knows that. God knows that you need him. That's the only thing that's going to bring you satisfaction. And he, out of his love and mercy, will do his best to get you back to him. This is not God throwing lightning bolts at, at, at Jonah out of some judgment or, or just retribution. This is God chastising Jonah, yes, out of a heart of love. Anytime a great holy God would choose to tinker with us piddly humans in an effort to get us back to him in relationship with him. That's mercy. It's grace. It's love. God is pursuing Jonah. He's begun to interrupt his life and be very careful in your own life. When you live in direct disobedience, God will send a storm designed to interrupt you, designed to take that thing that you trust in and transfer trust back to him. All of the mechanisms that Jonah has used to get away from God are not enough to stop God's commitment to him. God is committed that I want to use you to go to these people, and God's pursuing him to get Jonah back on track to go uh, give really the gospel to these people of Nineveh so that they might be redeemed. This is gracious by God. It would be, it's a very scary place when God stops pursuing you. Read Romans 1, the people that God gives over to a reprobate mind. And he says, you know what? You want it that way? Fine, have it. That's a scary spot. Read Romans 1. It doesn't go well for them. God, out of his love is pursuing Jonah. He's after Jonah. He's trying to interrupt him. And there may be some in this room that if you're honest, you would say, I, am, I have been running from God. I've put my trust in other things. I have, I have begun to supplant him in my heart. And if, if I'm honest, I'm headed in the opposite direction of where he wants me to head. Let him use today, let him use verse number four of Jonah to interrupt your life and respond in obedience he, out of his love, today has brought you here to give you this, and he's reaching out his hand saying, I want you to walk with me. I want relationship with you. I want you to do right. I want you to respond to that. Take his hand and, and know that that's a God who, who loves you in the midst of your mess, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of even your idolatry, all the turmoil. You say, man, it, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It feels frustrating. It feels like I'm being spanked. It doesn't feel good. I know it doesn't feel good, but he's loving you. Take his hand. Respond to him. He wants you to walk with him in obedience. Verse number five says, And the mariners were afraid. They cried every man unto his God and cast forth wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah, he's gone down into the sides of the ship. He lay and was fast asleep. The mariners are afraid. Okay, this, this must have been a storm. This is meant to describe the severity here. Here are men 
who are accustomed to the sea. They're sailing to Tarshish. Literally, you couldn't sail much further than that. You could, technically speaking, but they didn't really know that there was a whole other place to sail to. This is the corner of the known world they're going to. So these are, these are experienced men who do not get frightened by a little storm, okay? These are, these are deadliest catch dudes that, that would know how to navigate a storm, and God's sending it to them, and they're nervous wrecks. The waves are crashing down on the ship. The, the spray is hissing. The, the ship is creaking. The wind is howling, and they need a diaper change. So these guys are scared. And, and if you, well, next week we'll see you walk through it, they get more scared. And then they end up fearing the Lord, which is the awesome part of it, but that's next week. Stay tuned. But these men at this point in time are scared. And the Bible tells us that they begin to cry out every man unto his God. These, these pagan, polytheistic, pluralistic men begin to cry out every man unto his own God, which is such a picture of what much of our society would think is ideal. Hey, that, that, that pagan sailor has his God. That pagan sailor has his God. He is his God. He has, whatever, all roads lead to the same place. You cry to yours, you cry to yours, you cry to yours, you cry to yours. It, it, it'll all be good. However, their crying out to God is not rooted. Their prayers are not rooted in reality. You would, you would hope that they're learning, hey, we're all crying out to our God, but nothing's happening. The storm ain't stopping. The waves are still coming. We're taking on water. You would think that they would learn, hey, this isn't working. And there's a reason it's not working. Because there's only one true God. <laughs> They're crying out to no one. <laughs> but the sad thing is there is a man named Jonah who knows the one true God, who could be a testimony, who could call out to him, but he is asleep in the side of the ship. The guy who could be used is in his own conflict with God, who's, who, his horns are locked with Jehovah, and he can't because he's sleeping. Notice the, the progression through this chapter as Jonah goes down, 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 down. Verse number three tells us that Jonah, he gets up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and he goes down to Joppa. At the end of the verse, he, uh, he pays the fare thereof and he goes down into the ship. Verse number five tells us that Jonah is, is gone down into the sides of the ship and now he's laid down, he's sleeping. Jonah and his running from God is meant to picture this downward progression that whenever you choose to live in disobedience to God, it's always a demotion. It's never a promotion. And Jonah down, down, down now is sleeping in the side of this slip. And, it, it, and it's amazing because he's comfortable. The man living in dire opposition to the Lord God is comfortable. Ever been there? Where you get real comfortable in your sin? And God's about to make it uncomfortable. God's about to wake him up and make this scary for him. Don't think that when, when you, oh, I said, I got away with it, I'm comfortable, I'm good. You're going to reap what you sow. Be sure your sin will find you out. And Jonah's uh, this comfortable man running from God is about to find this out. And here are these sailors, verse number five, afraid, crying out to their gods, pluralistically, the Bible says they begin to cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. This is so bad that they're taking their cargo, chucking it overboard. They're taking the, the extra ropes, the extra sails, whatever they could. Let's get this ship lighter, throwing it overboard. What, what's happening here? 
I'll tell you what's happening. One man's disobedience is now costing these innocent men. Now, they're pagans. They're technically under the wrath of the God biblically. But one man's disobedience is now costing the innocent men. Running from God is always costly. But what you don't bank on is that it's going to cost somebody else. Every, every I don't know what they threw over, orange, rug, tub, whatever they're chucking overboard, every time they drop it in the water, it's collateral damage because of Jonah's disobedience. These men aren't running from God. These men aren't, aren't doing anything. But Jonah is, and he has dangerously involved others in his escapism. He's put their lives in danger. Now they are in peril because of what he has said no to because he's running from the Lord. This is so true of your sin. We think that we can sin in this little vacuum of accountability where it's not going to hurt anybody else but me. I mean, I'm all by myself. I'm doing it by myself. No one else even knows. It's not going to hurt anybody. But can I tell you, other people always pay for your sin. And what should concern us the most is that more often than not, it's your children and your grandchildren that suffer for your sin. You begin to do wrong and it costs them. And if you think for a second that whatever it is that you're tinkering with, that I'm flirting with this person at work or I am connecting with this, with this old uh, flame that I had in high school on Facebook now or, or I'm looking at my pornography in isolation and that's, that's just going to affect you, you better wake up. That's going to affect a whole lot more than you. That sin is going to have collateral damage that hurts other people. If you think that you can just run from God, that you can even, even you can half-heartedly live for Jesus. I'm amazed at, at the adults sometimes that want to live half-heartedly for Jesus and pursue him a little bit. I mean, I'll be, okay, I'll do some church, I'll do a little bit of this, but, but really I'll, I'll, I'll allow my true effort and energy to be spent on my career, to be spent on earning money, to be spent on hunting or fishing or whatever the case may be. Do you think that your kids or grandkids are going to see that you live half-heartedly for Jesus and then they're just going to flip a switch and be all out for Christ? It normally doesn't work that way. Normally, you choosing not to live for the glory of God has an effect on them. They're able to pick up on that. And Jonah, living in disobedience, now has imperiled the lives of these people. So when you're running, when God interrupts you, that's designed for mercy and grace to you to get you back on track, that's also designed to help some other people that you're going to hurt if you don't. Verse number six. So the shipmaster, the captain, came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Now he probably said it with a little more emotion than that because there's a lot going on at this point. But this this really is, is a, a point that the author of Jonah, we don't know if it's Jonah or not who wrote it, but the author is designed, it's designed to grab our attention. The, the narration is of such that this verse is supposed to be a punch in the face, okay? So here's what's happening. Jonah is sleeping. There's a storm going. They're screaming. They're calling out to their gods. They're throwing it all overboard. But he's sleeping. So here comes the, and that must be a hard sleep if you're sleeping through that storm. 
Here comes the captain, and he begins to shake Jonah to wake him up. Ever woken up from a, just a real good nap, and, and you're groggy, and you're foggy, and for about 10 seconds, you're trying to connect the dots between the dream you were just having and the reality that you're now experiencing, and you just you don't know what's happening. You don't know where everything's going. This is Jonah as he begins to wake up from his sleep. And the shipmaster takes him, and, and imagine if you're waking up, that now all of a sudden I, I hear the storm, I hear the men screaming, and initially his mind must think that there's something wrong here, there's something going on here. And the shipmaster says to him, look at the words the shipmaster says, what meanest thou a sleeper, arise, call upon thy God. Now look in verse number two of Jonah. God comes to Jonah what started this whole episode in the first place? God comes and says, arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. He says, arise and cry. Those, those Hebrew words are kum karah. Now this shipmaster shaking Jonah, Jonah coming to realizing, oh no, what's happening? The shipmaster literally says, arise, call. He says, kum karah. The same words that God said that Jonah ran from, now this captain, and this is purposely designed to point our attention to this. It's saying the same words, kum karah, that have been echoing probably in Jonah's mind now for some days. And he hears this, and the shipmaster says unto him, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And immediately Jonah has to think, I can't. I can't do it. I'm running from him. I'm living in disobedience to him. The relationship is severed. This pagan man is shaking him, saying, Kum karah, get up. The same thing that God told him. Call on your God, and Jonah has to think, I can't do it. Do you see how God is masterfully intervening and interrupting Jonah's life to try to get a hold of him? Do you see how God is trying to use this in, in a beautiful, supernatural way to, to squeeze the man and say, respond to me? But Jonah is refusing. Jonah still, as we know the story goes, continue, continues to run. But if you're not careful, you'll miss what the shipmaster asked Jonah. And I want us to end the verse with this thought. The shipmaster comes to him and says, what meanest thou, sleeper? Literally, how can you sleep? Which is a fair question. All this turmoil is happening. People are perishing. How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God that he would save us so that we won't perish. Now, it's easy for us to look at Jonah and be like, yeah, idiot, get up. Respond. How can you sleep? This is crazy. And, it, and it's in the... The style here, the satire, is meant to show you, uh, obviously, he's, he's idiotic. But it's meant to go deeper than that, and it's meant to show you, that's you sometimes. That's me sometimes. What, what's really happening here? The pagan unbeliever asked Jonah, how can you sleep? Get up and pray to God and ask him to save us so that we won't perish. Are you starting to connect the dots? Let me put it this way. If your neighbor came to your door and said, hey, you're, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. How have, how have you been sleeping? 
Like you believe Jesus is the Son of God, he died to pay for my sins, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father is through him. Yeah? You believe that there's heaven and hell and that the difference is whether I believe on Jesus? Well, yeah. If your neighbor asked you, well, how come you're sleeping on the job? Could they say to you, get up, call on God, ask him that I would not perish, but I would be saved. Now, your neighbor's probably not going to ask you that. But if they did, what would your response be? Would it be, you know what? Hey, you know I've invited you to 18 million church services. You know you're annoyed with me by, by now. You know that I, I sent you that, you know, I emailed you that, that link to the gospel page on our website. You know that I gave you that done book. You know, hey, I can show you my prayer list. You're on my prayer list. Could you say that? Or would their words be valid? Would their words, how can you sleep, get up, call on God to save me, would those ring true? It's meant to show you that Jonah's not the only one who runs from the sphere of evangelism that God has destined for him. We too have been called to evangelize, to take people who are perishing, literally, and to see them come to know the Lord so that they would be saved, to call out to God, to ask him to save them, to, to wake up and to do that. But many times we're sleeping on the job. A soldier in time of war faces a court-martial, maybe even death, if they sleep on the job. Why? Because they're putting other men in danger. How much more precious are the souls of men? Is that, is verse number six you? It's designed to punch me in the gut. It's designed to slap you upside your face. And for you to see this man who, he's so crazy, and to see yourself in the mirror, and to see that oftentimes we just don't have the gospel concern that we should have. Oftentimes we are sleeping while a world around us perishes. I would contend this. I would contend that there is a world around us who would love for the church to rise up and be the church. I'm, I'm speaking, I'm painting with a broad brush right now. I'm not talking specifically about harvest, although I am talking broadly. I think the world at large would appreciate and would, res would respect someone that had enough conviction and really believed what they said that they believed, that they would get up and that they would, they would walk with God, that they would try to evangelize, that they would try to share uh, the gospel with them, that we would attempt to be salt and light. I think the world is waiting for the church to do that. That as they literally are, are above board drowning, trying everything they can, calling out to this God, trying this, trying this, throw this overboard, trying everything they can, that if we as the church would look at a world who's trying everything they can to find this salvation from the Lord, that, that yes, they, they try the wrong stuff. Yes, they, they, turn to, uh, they turn to pornography or fornication or sin or to, or to lust or to drugs or to alcohol or just this, this search for freedom that I can, I can live in autonomy outside of authority or that I, I can, some, some people, it's, it's crime. There's a lot of things that people turn to, but I believe if we, the church, would engage them and res would respond, would wake up and say, God, save them and do our best that it would be appreciated. Here's, it's, it's a sad verse in the Bible because a pagan man has to ask the believer to wake up. Don't let that be you. Don't, let's not let that be us. 
We should have a community that knows us by our fervor to reach them, by our fervor to pray for them, to be involved, to, to disciple them. We should have a community that knows us that way. In many ways, we should arise, wake up, call on our God that he would save them so that they might not perish. I'll say this in closing. There's another man who slept in a ship during a storm. He lived about 700 years after Jonah. His name's Jesus. And he slept and the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, how can you sleep? Don't you care? We're gonna perish. We're gonna die. But Jesus, unlike Jonah, wakes up and says, peace be still. The storm stills and the men step back and say, what kind of guy is this? What manner of man is this? And they begin to connect the dots. That's not just man, that's God in the flesh. And those miracles begin to unfold, which ultimately come to their grand crescendo in the cross as Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of mankind, is buried, and then the greatest miracle of all, raises from the dead. This, this type that Jonah is sleeping in the ship that, that kind of catapults us to Jesus lets you know, if you've never believed on him, that there's a God who wants to calm the storm in your life. If you've never believed on him, he wants to bring you to a point where you do believe and he wants to save you from your sin. If you have believed and you're running in disobedience to him, he wants you to take his hand. He wants to, he wants to redeem you once again, really, and, and take you back and to teach you that he's for you, that he wants you to walk with him in a relationship. But church, let's be people who learn from Jonah. We're going to see next week that Jonah's response isn't, isn't great. It doesn't stop God from pursuing him and God's gonna continue on with this relentless grace, but church, let's be people who choose to wake up, see the need. There is a community all around us. There's a nation all around us. There's a world all around us that needs us to share the gospel, needs us to call out to God and ask them to save. Last week, we... We asked you, pray for Dennis's wife. I trust that many of you did this week and Randy got saved. That should be over and over and over again. That should be over and over and over again. That we, the church, would decide I'm not gonna sleep on the job. I'm gonna walk in obedience with the mission that he has for us.